Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. This evening, my special guest for your quintessential listening poetry pleasure is award-winning poet Millicent Borges Akati. Her new poetry collection, Quarantine Highway, is available now. Welcome to the program, Millicent. Happy to be here. I'm glad. I'm glad you're happy. Let's begin this poetic journey, all right? Okay. All right. Millicent, what is poetry to you? Um, For me, it's always been a way to express myself. Um, I guess from technical definition, poetry is um, written words or spoken words that you don't have control um, that you have control over the line and where the line breaks versus mm-hmm. um, fiction or prose where the line or the type runs through. It's All also, right. for me, usually poetry captures a moment. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about this moment. Well, I think poetry more than fiction, it's able to sort of grab one particular moment in time and sort of delve in and, and feel around inside it in a way that other types of writing can't. And that's true for the spoken word as well, as far as poetry goes. Yes, it is. Feel around inside it. I mean, I've never heard that before. I I like that. Tell me more about that feeling around inside in terms of what poetry is. Well, like you can sort of freeze time. So like if poetry were a box, you can open the box, you can see the contents, you can take them out, you can look at it. Whereas if you're writing fiction or nonfiction, you just say there's a box. Um, but you can sort of experiment and you can sort of, I think the thing I like about a lot about poetry is you can freeze time and go back and forth and it's just capturing that one moment and looking at all angles of, um, an issue or an event and you're free to do that. You're not, um, sort of compromised by time or, or space or, um, like a narrative. Wow. You know, I'm already in awe of you. I like that, <laughs> what you just said about poetry. Freezing time, I've never heard that either. And you're my 304th <laughs> best. So, <laughs> I like hearing you laugh, too. That's important. I like that so much. Freezing time in a box. Wow, you're on it tonight. You're on your A game tonight. All right. <laughs> so, knowing what you know about poetry, and you know a lot. You've done a lot of things. You're extremely accomplished. Why is it important in a general sense? Well, I think it's in the written word and the spoken word are very important. Um, I started looking at some of your questions before the interview, oh, and then I, then I, yeah, yeah, then I kind of chucked it out because I thought, you know what, I can just answer as I'm going to answer. But I did prepare a little bit about why poetry is important. And it's sort of the same reason, it's sort of the same reason why the spoken word is important. And I, I pulled a quote from Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. And he said, it's a victory when the weapons fall silent and the people speak up. 
And so I think it's that aspect of speaking up and showing up. And poetry has a way of doing that around activism. It can also be, you know, entertainment, but mm-hmm. words really matter and how you sort of frame them. Um, the other quote I pulled was from Churchill, who said, <laughs> we're going to win. We will never, ever surrender. It may be our fate to drown in a welter of our own blood, and that's preferable to living under the Nazis. So when you inspire people to keep fighting, um, words really matter. Then you take Martin Luther King, I Have a Dream. People listened because it was around maybe four words, you know. Mm -hmm. So a message, and poetry in a way can be a message, and it's a rally cry. So that's why I think it's important. Oh, Melissa, that's great. I'm going to let you take my seat <laughs> because you know more about it than I do. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Well, I'm, oh, I'm, like I'm, that. war- I'm warning you. That, that's the only prep I did. So. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it was wonderful. Zelensky, Churchill, and Dr. King in the same sense. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you can't beat that as we would say in my home with a stick. All right. Tell me about an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power? Um, let's see. Well, I was, I was in um, first grade, and I had a teacher who, whose father was a very famous uh, poet, but nobody knew that then, and she would have us recite poetry and in class. And um, her father was part of the um, Harlem um, poets in the 1950s. And so she would, oh, she was great. (laughs) And so we would stand up and try and memorize poems. And when someone stood up and said a poem and they memorized it, the whole class was transfixed. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to me that something that would get people to be silent and listen was really, really important and it mattered. You really take this seriously, the activist advocacy part of poetry. Tell me about that. I, I, I find it fascinating. Tell me more. Well, I think, I think coming from a, a place where sometimes the only, words, the only thing you have are words. Yes. And so you can start with that and you can rally around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's important. I'm, I, I grew up, um, uh, my family background is Portuguese, yes. and they, they're, called the, they're called the silent minority. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and part, part of writing, it's like people know, you know, minority groups, Portuguese yes. are kind of, they're just chucked under the rug a lot. <laughs> and growing up, it was like, you know, what's Portuguese, and, and what about that, and where do we fit in? And so words give a place to fit in, and they also give a voice and a meaning, and, and I think you can... You can really change how people think and feel through words. And so I've been trying the last, um, oh, I don't know, maybe 15 years. I interview um, Latinx writers and Portuguese and Portuguese-American and Portuguese-Canadian writers. Mm-hmm. And I try and get their stories and I try to push things through because you have a lot of the books and the publishing are, are the opposite of other. And so yes. I think it's important to highlight marginalized communities and to, um, you know, highlight voices that are not often heard from, if that makes sense. 
Yes, it, it does. I mean, the word other is so powerful to be outside the mainstream and to be sitting there or standing there looking in, and there's no way for you truly to get in. So I do understand that. Now, your book, right. you've written four collections. Your new book, Quarantine Highway. When I read that title, I said, hey, I want to know all about this. Tell me about it. What inspired it? Well, I was locked in uh, quarantine for, you know, like uh, most of the world was, but um, yes. perhaps more dramatically so. But um, I was under, you know, a quarantine, and just the world changed. You know, everything, how you do things changed. And I was trying to talk to my before, – before COVID, you know, I would go to universities and do readings, and I had a community – of writers that we worked together and and I put on a, a series at the local library and I work with um, this other group of kale soup for the soul writers and then everything just came to a, a slow grazing halt it was just like poof and so a bunch of us um, from Canto Mundo which was a poetry fellowship um, we got together online and we would write to uh, prompts and we would write once a day and we did 30 days, and it worked out so well, we did another 30. <laughs> and so we were posting our poems and interacting with each other, and that at least offered a measure of connection and community during this time when you're just kind of in a, in a bubble. And so I was writing, mostly I was just writing to be, a, you know, connected to the people that in my community. Mm-hmm. But I started thinking, well, maybe this would be something that other people would want to be a part of, and maybe I should you know, document it as an archive of that time. And so I started putting together the poems that I wrote during the quarantine. But a lot of them are not necessarily COVID. They're just sort of about being isolated and also about being othered, you know, (laughs) forcibly othered (laughs) for various reasons. So um, I put those together, and and unlike some other books, um, it got accepted right away. So... um, I was really happy to have sort of an archive about that quarantine period. All the poems in there were written during the early and the mid um, days of COVID, but they're not necessarily COVID poems. I just, you know, they're they're related, they're COVID adjacent, but they're mostly about being quarantined and isolated. Now, in terms of the structure of the contents in the book, how is it structured? Are the chapters just pages? Not chapters. Uh, there, it's by poem. I don't have sections. I don't have chapters. I just have it by poems, and then hopefully they build and they lessen, and then they build. And hopefully, if I've done it right, it has its own narrative just with the poems. Very nice, very nice. Now, you wrote this book. Please share with me the names of five of the poems in the book. This right um, random. Let's see. I had okay. I had a couple. Um, the first ones where they'd gone to see leaves. It made her feel like, yes, it's difficult, broken pieces, to miss the shadow, and side by side in fragile. I think that's five. Okay. How important is titling a poem? For me, it's the beginning. So I usually I usually start out with the title, and that's the thing that kind of hooks me. Mm-hmm. It's whether it's a line from something I'm reading or a line that's in my brain, 
and I, it's, it's kind of, I, 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 the hook is such a terrible term to say, but That's it right. is kind of the, 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 it's the thing that grabs me and, and builds into a poem as the title. Mm-hmm. So I usually start with the title and then I move from there. And sometimes the original title turns into the first line and sometimes vice versa. But it's usually the title is the key, you know, or the the tagline or the the um, combination lock to the poem. Very nice. You know, I when I first saw the cover, I was really struck by it's a beautiful, beautiful cover. Tell me about the creation of it. Oh, my God. Isn't it a beautiful cover? It, it really is. <laughs> um it's it's uh it's by a Portuguese American artist mm-hmm. and um he it's uh, it's called California Chagall and it's by Ralph Almeida and he lives in Brooklyn and I just love his work and he has illustrated some of my other poems that were online during COVID Oh, wow. And this one in particular, I really, really liked, and we've collaborated on a couple of other projects. And mm-hmm. I thought this says it all to me because you have a person and they're sitting in a window the the, uh, the cover is an open window with bright colors of orange and blue, sort of tropical colors. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of in the style of Chagall. And then yes. there's a person sitting in the windowsill with um, flowers and the window's open, but the person's inside and they don't have a head. And so that, I thought, kind of like when you get COVID, you lose your sense of smell and taste, and you're trapped inside. But then the cover art is just so colorful and catchy and beautiful, and it just seemed like that was it. And I was just, I just, my heart just went out to that cover, and I was like, oh, I have to do this cover. And he's such a great artist, and um, I really wanted something that was a positive graphic for the book. Well, it's funny when I was preparing the promotional flyer for the cover, for the for this program, and I saw the cover. I said, "Look, Michael, don't chop off anything. You need to get his shoes in there too." He said, "I'm serious. You don't know how I worked around to make sure that his shoes were in the frame. I needed everything." Now, when you think about this book, you think about Quarantine Highway. Tell me about the highway piece. What are you saying? Well, I live in a, a rural community, and mm-hmm. it's, it's, in, it's in Los Angeles County, but it's a canyon, and it's very rural. And so there's one big road that goes right through the canyon, and that's pretty much it except for some fire roads. And so I was looking and thinking that, that that one highway is like a stretch to, you know, civilization. And that's our real, our really our, own conne- our only connection. And so I thought, I'm sitting here at the crossroads. My house is really near the highway. Um, and I was like, God, and I haven't been on the highway, you know, since COVID, stuck here. And, and I thought, it's really like you're, you're, you're on this highway, but you can't drive it. You can't drive through it. You're just looking at it. And so I thought quarantine and then the juxtaposition of a highway is a road, a traveled road, a busy, trafficked road, and then you have the opposite staying put. And so those two mesh together for me. Very nice. Now, thinking about writing that book and all that you put into it, what did you learn about yourself? Who are you as a consequence of this book? What's new about you? What's different about you, if there's anything? Um, I think every book is a, is a process. 
Mm-hmm. And I think writing down what I was going through and how I was feeling, it was a way to become at peace for the new challenges. It's like once you state a problem, then it's easier to kind of unpack and unfold and deal with. And yes. just writing down each each one of the moments and kind of laying it out and illustrating it, um, it, it, it sort of taught me to look at it with not just such negativity to kind of say, mm-hmm. okay, this is it. All right. You're going to get your boxes in the front door and let them in. You're going to spray bleach on everything. You're going to be terrified looking at the news. And, and I'm so sick of people saying the new normal, mm-hmm. but you, you have, you, so I, I guess I got, I came to peace with, you know, this is how things are now. And how can you work within that new frame? and still be you, and still do things out in the world, and still write, and still work on, on unothering <laughs> in the yes. world, and mm-hmm. how can you do that within this new framework? And so I think the book was, was helping me to look outside um, the negative things and the new challenges and try and deal with what I had and what I was given. Mm. Let's imagine for a moment that we're standing in front of a Barnes & Noble. And the line is a mile long waiting to purchase your book, all right? No one has gone in yet. The store is still closed. What would you advise your potential readers about before reading the book? What would you tell them? Um, I'd ask them to think of a time when they felt challenged or lost in the last couple of years and open a page at random and see if they connect to something in the book. All right, all right, all right. Well, it's time for our audience to connect with something in the book. It sounds like you want to say something. Oh, I was, I was going to say, I had someone on, I had to add to that kind of, I had someone okay. on, on Twitter. I'd made a comment about the book. And mm-hmm. someone posted on Twitter, and they said, oh, you got to read page 23. And I was like, oh, my oh. God, what's that page? <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. So the line is already formed. All right. Millicent. So it's a small, it's a small line. <laughs> but... <laughs> all right. <laughs> Please share a poem for us. I want to hear you work. Okay. I'll start with the first one I said, um, where they'd gone to see leaves. And this was inspired by a poem by Carl Markham. And he's a poet in um, Pennsylvania, and um, it's, his poem was called Q Lazarus, Lazarus that rises out of the dead. And so I took one of the lines from Q Lazarus, and that's what this poem was started on. Where they'd gone to see leaves. Drawing a blank meaning, the words leaving or leaves do not side up that parallel universe anymore. Unless the truth is more than that, like, It is a multiple-choice test about of which definition is closest to the meaning, the essential failing to recall a memory, falling into another scene, or unable to retrieve the name of a face I can know and know and know, a lost baseball over the neighbor's fence, unable to remember a piece of cotton hanging on the plastic line in the backyard, or why my mother's voice was high-pitched that day when we all found out. The opposite of confinement, the not knowing is liberty, in a way. Something new in an abyss of starting over. To random new cities, always starting over. 
Only then we did not know it. At one point in the future, I can only imagine that I will have his name or know the way his green Buick Electra pulled into the driveway on Cherry when he got home after working at his shift at Sears. End poem. Oh, tell me more about the purpose of that piece. What are you trying to say? I, I'm, I'm sorry to say this. I just kind of like the poem to speak for itself. Okay. Um, okay. I'm, I'm really, I'm really crappy at explaining what that really meant, or okay. I kind of like to just jump in in the moment, and then maybe people read it a second and third time, and then what it means mm-hmm. to them. Um, mm-hmm. I just, I just, I feel like. If I give one explanation, then it, in, it might destroy what a, someone else is thinking. And they go, oh, that's not what I was thinking at all. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, do me a favor. Read it again. Read it again. Thank you. Okay. Where they'd gone to see leaves. Drawing a blank meaning, the words leaving or leaves, do not side up that parallel universe anymore. Unless the truth is more than that. Like, it is a multiple choice test about of which definition is closest to the meaning. The essential failing to recall a memory. Failing, falling into another scene or unable to retrieve the name of a face I can know and know and know. A lost baseball over the neighbor's fence. Unable to remember a piece of cotton hanging on the plastic line in the backyard. Or why my mother's voice was high-pitched that day when we all found out. The opposite of confinement, the not knowing is liberty in a way, something new in an abyss of starting over, to random new cities, always starting over. Only then we did not know it. At one point in the future, I can only imagine that I will have his name or know the way his green Buick Electra pulled into the driveway on Cherry when he got home after working at his shift at Sears. Mm-hmm. End poem. Very nice. I like and I ask my guests periodically to read specific poems twice because the first time I'm settling in and the second time I'm truly listening. So thank you for sharing it twice. My my husband has a has a phrase he likes to say when he's eaten something good and he says, mm-hmm. One for hunger, one for one for hunger, the second for flavor. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> I may steal that. Tell your husband I may steal that one. He has a bite of ice cream. He goes, that's for hunger. He goes, the second one, that's for flavor. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Now, when you think about writing, you've written a number of collections, and you have a fan base, and people are clamoring for your work, and I'm saying that legitimately, truly. Do you try to be original, or do you deliver what you think your readers want? I try to be true to myself. I okay. try to be as authentic to me and the me mm-hmm. that's writing and the me in my brain and what mm-hmm. I want to write. I mm-hmm. think the minute you start trying to please other people, you have gone off course. <laughs> that's how I feel. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I got to write what's important to me, you know, not what I think is important to other people. And it may be really stupid, but that's what I want to write, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, there seems to be different schools of thought. I've had others say whether well, they're writing for the readers. They're not writing for themselves. And I've had people, like what you just shared, that I'm writing for me primarily, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm not writing for them. What do you think about it? There are two schools, maybe more schools. Um, 
I'm like, you know, it's it's fine what other people do, but mm-hmm. I only know me. So oh, wow. I, I got to write what I got to write. So <laughs> All right. I can't, I, I can't, I can't, I can't predict or, or guess what other people are going to want from me. It's impossible. And I'll go crazy trying to think about it. So, you know, I got to write if, if I, if I want to write about, you know, Barbie dolls or Smurfs or something, and that's really important to me, then that's what I do, you know? Yes. Um, and, and hopefully if I, if I do it, if I do it well enough, other people have, I, they go, Oh, I like that too. Okay. I like <laughs> your tell it like it is spirit. <laughs> I admire that. I admire that. Now, when you think about poetry and poems and just everything about it, are poems letting your guard down or building a wall? I think it's like every conversation; it can do both. Okay, tell me more. I don't think I don't think it's one thing. Uh, you know, in a in a black and white world, I live in gray. All right. You know, I ba- I bathe I, I bathe in gray. I see I see all sides of the arguments. I try to I listen tell. a lot. Go ahead, I'm sorry. I'm no, so it. I mean so I think I think you can you can build walls, um, just like you can with speeches or conversation or laws. You can build a lot of walls. Or you can open up. You know, you think of the, the border walls and Berlin wall. You can you can spend your life tearing them down or you can build them up. Um, I like, I think really good poetry touches on vulnerability. And so I like to think of it as a way of letting people in and me letting other people, um, I'm not really, I'm not really into building walls. So, (laughs) but I can, I can see how it could serve both purposes. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying good or bad or judgment on it. I'm just saying a poem could build walls and it could break them down. Very much so. Please share another piece. Okay, this is called It Made Her Feel Like. Um, What about it? It kind of started with the idea we have a lot of um, rats and rodents in the canyon. Mm -hmm. And um, (laughs) so it sounds like a creepy thing to start out with, but um, the sort of being – cramped in in quarters and you have we have coyotes and mountain lions and we also have some rats and snakes and things and that right. kind of started the thought of this although it is not about that per se mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you wanted to say something about each poem i can't tell you yeah. why exactly it started but it, i was on that track all right then. it made her feel like she could stop the whim of the whistleblowers easing her out of her life and into the dread it was hours after an afternoon or maybe Thursday. Does it feel like more than a week ago or is it lost like a decade? And oh my goodness, where did the scissors disappear to? A few breaths away, it was 1992 and the world seemed to spin on my access. In downtown Los Angeles, where I was silly and things were once cared about, a gypsy dress from the boardwalk before a party was towed out to look at and smile. A missed phone call to come into work, a friend yelling at me upstairs. In 2020, I can't imagine driving on the freeway or waiting in line. Every day, things slip through my slipping place, and my fingers close and easy and sodded dirt now, and I focus on things at hand that I can reach for, tasks obtained safely, close to from where I am sitting. 
It is the darkness that tells me what to do, or the awful, for it is my time that tells me to be the opposite of night and the walls chewing into the walls. End poem. Wow. How do your poems develop? We talked about the title. Please guide us through the stages of a poem. What do you do? For, uh, for me, each poem is sort of organically grown. I don't really have a, a set way, one way to do it. But All right. a lot of times I'll start with the one line that I, I'll use as a title. Maybe I'm reading or a lot of times I overhear somebody say something like a phrase like, oh, that's good. i got to write down. <laughs> and then that that sort of percolates in my mind. And I'll walk around with that line in my mind sometimes for a day, a week, a month, a long time, sometimes for a few hours. And then I try to take what's in my mind and then I translate it onto paper or the computer. And I try and match what's in my mind with what I can write out into the text. Um, other times I'll be working with, um, I make a lot of lists. So I'll be working with a list of words and then I get the title and then I sort of try and work around like a almost like a puzzle with a list of words and I sort of build it from there so those kind of poems are built on the page the first kind of poems are sort of built in my head and like more like one's more like translation and the other one is sort of like sorting out all right I'm wondering does it hurt you to write poetry if not why not I can't say that it ever does. I can't say that it ever does. It usually, it's like, um, it's like getting things out and getting them put on paper in a solid place where I can hold it out like a mirror and look at it, or I can open the mirror up and look at other people. I don't ever feel like it's a, a hurting process. I've never been one of these people who get anxious about writing or not writing. It's just sort okay. of part of how I live my life and it's just part of who I am and it just sort of happens organically. So for me, I can't say that it's hurt or painful or anything like that. Not, I'm not saying that it's easy or that I have it all lift. It's yes. just that for me, it's more of a healing process than a hurting process. Very nice. I should have asked you earlier, do you come from a literary background? I don't really. Um, my, uh, dad was an um, artist and he was a, a painter and then he worked at Sears <laughs> and uh, he worked his way he worked his way up from the paint department at Sears mm -hmm. all the way to the display department where he was doing oh, the window dressing and putting on the mannequins and you know when I was a kid Sears was a big deal sort of for yeah, us it was and uh, <laughs> oh, Sears catalog, hey baby. <laughs> yeah. So I spent a lot. I spent a lot of time hanging out at Sears, watching my dad work, and so um, I will say that my family was big readers. We had a lot right. of books in the house, mm -hmm. and um, I was also. Um, I don't know. If, I can't remember what I sent you, but I was also named after a library. There's a, a library in. In, in Fairhaven, Massachusetts, and it's called the Millicent Library, and my mother used to go there when she was a little kid, and she would sit in the window seat, and she would say, if I had a daughter, I would name her after this library. So mm -hmm. I kind of feel like I didn't have necessarily a literary background, but I, mm -hmm. I definitely had 
you know, books and art in my life. And, you, you know, you, you can't, you got it. You got to meet up to the standard of being named after a library. You got to write something, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> you got a reputation to live up to, right? <laughs> I do, you know, and, and as a kid, I, I, I spent a lot of time in libraries as a kid, you know, after school, ride your bike and the Alamedas branch library. I grew up in Long Beach and Right, mm-hmm. and I spent most afternoons after school at the library. So being surrounded by books and and seeing books as a you know an avenue of learning about the world and mm-hmm. you know so not necessarily a literary family. I'd say a working class sort of family, and but we read a lot. Very nice. You know, all great writers, Millicent, have great writing influences. Who are some of yours, and what makes them great in your eyes, living or dead? Oh, God, so many. Um, I'm sure this is the hardest question you ask people because everyone says there's hundreds and you don't want to. Um, let's see. <laughs> um, I guess one of the first books I remember reading when I was learning to read and starting to read was Little Women. And I thought, oh, this is a big book. I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn something from this book. All right. And I took it home, and I took it home in the in the basket on my bicycle. And I'm like, oh, it's a big book. I'm gonna really learn. And mm-hmm. um, so, also, it was about women and girls, you know. And I thought, this is pretty mm-hmm. great. <laughs> so it's not about not about men doing stuff. It's about young women. And so, I think that book and Joe, the main character. Um, turned into being a writer, and so I, I sort of um, felt akin to that. And it took me a really long time to read that book because I, I really wasn't at that level to read that book at that time. Yes. But mm-hmm. um, I, I, it was the first one that I remember really loving and, and working with. And I remember also the Emily Dickinson, um, you know, this is sort of early. Yes. And then uh, I'm going through – so many, so many great writers. Really like Pablo Neruda for what he says from the heart, Antonio Machado, um, uh, Fernando Pessoa, the Portuguese poet who had all the different heteronyms, the different personalities, and he wrote in different character styles and, and with such a, a crisp, sarcastic wit that I felt like, gosh, you can say anything. Um, and in and, and sort of, you know, time now maybe um, – Really, really like um, Linda Hull. She's passed away, but um, she was one of the first people I saw um, read at a poetry reading, and she was just fabulous. And she'd been in a car wreck, and she showed up in cr- on crutches and read her poems, and I was like, man, she's fierce, you know? <laughs> she's yes. just so fierce. Um, and let's see. Um, let's see, Merwin. Did I say Merwin also? Um there's a lot of um, poets that I admire, ones that people that I know. Uh, Louis Vet Resto, I love her oh. work. Um, and Carlo Matos and Amy Serbatista, um, Paula Nevish. Um, a lot of people, you know, it's like you, you grow up and you're reading books that are out there, and then as you write more and you work in community, you're reading books by friends. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's been a, a turnaround blessing. And I, hopefully, I mean, unless we're not paying attention, we learn something from every book we read, you know, that's so. how I feel. Well, please share one I more hope piece. That. 
I'm sorry, I interrupted again. Okay. <laughs> you know how Another I am. Interrupt. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, uh, this one is um, from a line by Inez Fontesta uh, Santos, and it's, yes, it's difficult. And so the tirade extends like a chemical mixture in an extruder. It pushes and pulls back until the tail end of the hurt is knifed off and another section is extruded. After that and then after that, more after that, and the bulk of it is all bullshit. We were once invincible and carefree, able to walk the streets, ride the buses, and talk to each other, as close as if to kiss and kiss and kiss we did, with tongues and teeth, and then, as a hello, we kissed. We kissed each other's cheeks on opposite sides, saying, yes, I am with you, and we are the same. But it was all so easy then, and it was how we did things then, dirty and up close, and we breathed on each other, sighing air, sipping in fine water droplets into each other's lungs. As kids, we ran over to the Yanis family to catch chicken pox and leaned out the window to hug mom when she got the mumps at 40. It was simple and sweet and maybe how life was meant to be when we held up our wrists. Someone came to pick us up and whisper, hush. End poem. Wow. You know, I was thinking, there's a crispness about your writing. It's like walking in a breeze. It's not too strong. Not too strong. But it's it's like you're walking through a breeze. Let's take a brief break, and we'll be right back. We are back. I am Michael Anthony English. <laughs> I'm here with Millicent Voyager Zakata. Question for you. Are you ready? Yep. All right. You know, some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature. Once it's out there, there's so much you can do to correct or improve it. While others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. What is your take on the editing process? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm of the mind that once it gets out in the universe, it's a done deal. Wow. So once it's published, then, you know, people take it how they will, and it's finished. Now, I'm, I know that uh, Whitman, Leaves of Grass, he revised mm-hmm. and revised and revised and had different versions of it. Um, I can see maybe if someone does you know, collected poems, that's the opportunity, the last do or die to make all the corrections you wanted to make. But I, I really think that once it's it's out and it's packed up and it's, you know, in the mailbox ready to go, <laughs> you know, fired up, ready to go, it's done. And um, so I feel like it's got to be stamped. And then also, if there's a problem with it, I just got to take that error and that problem and live with it and wrap it around, wrap my arms around it and say, that's how it is. <laughs> so, um 
I think that once it gets out there, it's out there. So how do you know when a poem is done? I think when I when I I feel really good about it, and I feel like it's just a sense, like I feel like it. It's like cooking. You go, yep, that's done. Mm-hmm. Um, you just look at it, and you feel like it has all the parts in there, and everything's done to a point that you think it is. And um, a lot of times, I read stuff aloud, or I'll read them. You know, I have friends I share work with, or my husband. We go back and forth, and I read the poem. I'm like, does this work? Does this work? I think when all the doubts are gone. Mm-hmm. When I look mm-hmm. and I go, I don't. I wouldn't want to do anything else to it, and I don't have any doubts remaining in it. It's good to go. That's when it, it it's done for me. You know, that is usually one of my questions. Where does your poetic doubt begin, and where does it end? Think about that in general about poetry. I think when I'm when well when I don't. I'll answer how I think you're asking. Yes. Um, yes, please. For for me when. It's like when I'm working on a poem, I usually don't have that much doubt. Mm-hmm. And then I'm working on it, working on it. And, I, and as I'm writing it, I'm fixing all the doubt in it. And then it gets sent out into the universe in a, any way, shape, or form. And hopefully it's published in a magazine and then a book. Mm-hmm. And then, then the doubts happen. Then I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Why did I use that word? Why did I say that thing? And it's too late, you know. Um, and and so, and I always, I always like the thing that I'm working on at the moment. Oh, this is fantastic! You guys are gonna love this. It's so great. It's so great. And then when it gets to the table, it's raw, and I go, ooh. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm always my favorite poem is always the one I'm writing and working on at the moment. But mm-hmm. then after the fact, that's when the doubt. You just like, oh no. Oh, it's in writing, and oh, what did I do? Oh, my God, it's terrible. (laughs) Well, wait a minute. You just said a little bit earlier that (laughs) after you edit it and it's published, it's done. How do you match the two? (laughs) It's done, and there's nothing I can do about it, and it's just on me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Those are, I have to own the. You have to own it. You know. You learn yes. everything. You get out on stage, and you just gotta own the performance. So the yes, doubts yes. for me come. They come after. All right. All right. Has a poem you've written ever humbled or frightened you? One of your own poems. I guess I can pick one or the other, huh? Yeah, you can do both. If you like, you share both. Yeah. <laughs> I think sometimes, like this one, I had this one poem, and I was going through a difficult time in a relationship, and mm-hmm. I wrote this poem like in one fell swoop. And it was the, the last couple lines were, I enter backwards door through. And that line came to me, and I started writing it. And... I put it in a drawer, and I didn't think about it. And then a couple months after, I took it out of the drawer, and I looked, and I thought, oh, wow, it's bigger than I am. It's like then I started having doubts. I'm like, did I even write this? Did someone else write this? Mm-hmm. And so I definitely feel humbled sometimes when I look at the words after the fact. You know, you could have doubts, but you can also go, oh, wow. And sometimes you look way back and say, wow, I learned something from that. That really helped me get through a really difficult time. Because that's what poetry does. It heals 
and it helps you sort life out and it's a conversation and I think that poetry can humble you and a poem that you feel is bigger than you and you're not you're not enough to write it and then suddenly you, you kind of try to or you do and you think oh it's bigger than me how would you classify your ability to write as a creative gift or a creative art? What did you say? What was the second part? A creative what? As a, as a creative gift or a creative art? Uh, um, think of it more as just part of life okay. and a way of expressing. I think everyone has a, a, a gift. I think everyone has a God-given gift. You just got to kind of figure yes. out what that is. Mm-hmm. And um, I think of it more as a, a way to express myself and live in the world. It's a way to cope with things. And if 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 I get lucky, you know, a few times something will hit out in the world, and other people will think it's it's you know worthwhile too. Um, mm-hmm. I can't be as arrogant as to say, "Ooh, I have a gift," you know. Um, okay. But it's it's a it's a um, a tool um, to express myself and um, a way to view the world and and sort of help me narrate my own story mm-hmm. and my my position in the world. And I wouldn't I wouldn't be so brazen to say I'm you know the only one to do it or the only. Mm-hmm one that's doing that but it, it my story at least I can do that I can't do anyone else's but I can do that so um, I guess I the first choice is a gift versus an art all right then please share another piece okay um, this was uh, it's called broken pieces and it, I was reading an article about a um a little boy who had been separated from his parents um over the the border crisis during the former president mm-hmm. um when families were torn apart and when i was little we had a lot of people going through the um immigration and we go to a lot of ceremonies where they were getting sworn in sworn in <laughs> sworn in <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you can talk now sworn in and so i'm 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 pretty clear with how you know that feels to you know become a citizen and this this separation of families was just a tragic tragic um scar so that was sort of the um impetus for this poem broken pieces if and maybe and meanwhile the chorus sang full of weed a reflection on the acoustics in the church and when does it ever seem all right When will it be that again? The empirical wish of a stupid requirement for happiness. Was that what it was? And they live happily ever after is the phrase perhaps you were looking for. A timid, cool minute inside your head when you used to believe otherwise. Back in the slow, when time, when it was not the new normal in man, it is not just us. It is global and inflated, and then you know it is terrifying. Did they take a census this year? 2020. America. I seem to remember 10 years ago, the government wanted to know our household income and what we did for a living. This year, the forum was all about age and race, and you could fill in whatever other you wanted, like a weakness, a mere description of how it was not supposed to be. End poem. Wow. That's very powerful. You know, Millicent, 
we live in, for many people, you should never say most, but for many people, we live in a world that there's just so much happening. The good, the bad, the ugly, and the indifferent. So what I want to know from you, and you've, you've touched on it early in this program, what do you view as being the role of a poet in modern-day society? I think I'll take your words, the good, bad, and ugly, and the indifferent, and I'd like to think that poetry is a way to access the indifferent. Mm, and I think it's our job. I think it's our job as poets to to get in through possibly entertainment worthwhile mm-hmm. and get people to read things and to cure the indifference. So I think once you have a poem affect you or a book affect you, you can no longer be indifferent um, because you've been told <laughs> and yes. and you've you've experienced some other that's not mm-hmm. yours and and mm-hmm. that's why there's such a problem when. When education is being, you know, um, there's so many rules about education and books are being burned and taken away and you have this sort of bad mouthing of education and learning. And so I think the role of writing in general is to um, to fight that um, indifference. Mm. You know, I think it was Maya Angelou who said that if you know better, you do better because you can't say you don't know once you know. And if you do continue in that vein. You did it by choice. Right. Really, really good. Tell me about a poem that you were proud of writing, but afraid to share for a possible fear of misinterpretation. Um, well, at, at the risk of my looking really um, terrible. <laughs> no, no. You I'll, go, I'll go there. I'll I, go, I'll go, I'll go there anyway. I'll go there anyway. Uh, You're fantastic. <laughs> when, I, when, when, I was, when I was at school uh, mm-hmm. at, at, at Cal State uh, Long Beach, uh, I had a time when I was writing some sort of raunchy work and right. poetry. That, and, and I had um, a poem appear in a, in a uh, school newspaper. And I was like, oh boy! And I came and I came home and I and my dad was in the uh, bathroom <laughs> and I slipped it under the door and I said, I don't want you to just read this. And I said, just so you know, so people won't tell you in case they see the news, the little newspaper. My dad comes out with the folded newspaper and he says, don't ever show me anything again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> did you stick now, to what that you was said? not true that, that was not true he he came he came I grew up and I started writing different work and mm-hmm. um he turned around but that poem he was like but I I felt like I should show him first so at least he knew the worst of the worst <laughs> and and so it wasn't misinterpreted in a way and you know I, and so that that was a that was a time when I was really concerned about how things would show, you know, themselves. But anyway. I can understand. <laughs> I won't I won't ask you to share it, but I understand. I understand. Now <laughs> I know that you work with spoken word groups and uh, at the uh, at the at the place where you work. How important is it for you to take part in poetry readings and other live events? 
Oh, I love I love um, doing readings, and I I I run a reading series. Um, yes. One is Kale Soup for the Soul, and it's right. uh, Portuguese American writers that write about family, food, and culture. Mm-hmm. And it's a way to reach communities and in 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 uh, Portuguese and and Luso communities where um, people from Luso countries, Lusophone countries, and um, it's a way to reach people in community that possibly that might be the only reading they ever go to, or it might mm-hmm. be the hundredth one. But I like doing readings in communities, um, and we did um, a bunch of readings. I also, from uh, um, observer standpoint, for the last eight years. Mm-hmm. I've been um, curating uh, a series I curated with a, a partner for um, eight years, and um, she recently moved to Chicago. But mm-hmm. we um, run a series called Loose Lips at the Topanga, it's a L.A. County library. And mm-hmm. so we bring, we bring um, poets from outside of the area in to read, and we give them a stipend. I think it's important to pay writers. And we have them read for half an hour, and mm-hmm. they can sell books. And they can, we do a Q&A as well. We've been on Zoom the last two years. Okay. Um, so I think, it's, I think poetry should be spoken out loud and shared that way. I, mm-hmm. I believe in hearing the, the poems from the poet's mouth. And I, I'm, so, I'm so honored to, to work with these series. And I kind of like playing, you know, roles of sort of organizing them because then I get to enjoy. And I get mm-hmm. to see all these poets that I think, oh, who would I like to get read for us? And then mm-hmm. a lot of times they can do it. <laughs> and that's great too. Well, you know, it's funny. Initially, I was tongue-tied because I was attempting to remember kale soup for the soul. <laughs> I, I don't know what I was thinking. I was I was thinking cabbage soup for the soul, but it's kale <laughs> soup for the soul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when you think about reading, do you like reading out loud? Yeah, I do. I do. I like reading out loud. Um, you stumped me a little because you said at the beginning you wanted me to introduce the poem. And I kind of, when I read, I usually don't say anything about the poem. I usually just okay. kind of go in. So mm-hmm. I kind of, a lot of the readings that I like to, I like to hear background about it, but I also like to be taken up kind of into the spell of the poem. Wow, very so, nice. Um, you know, so I feel like I like, it. and sometimes, you know, going and, and with an explanation, you know, sometimes the best readings, they just kind of sit there and they just read without any comment. And so I try, you know, to aim for that when I, I do my readings. Sometimes right, well, when you go to a reading, you know, and mm-hmm. someone gives a big explanation and the explanation is longer than the poem. Gosh, I hate that. <laughs> well, from this point forward, <laughs> we'll just call it. No, 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 no. You don't get to change no, it. No, I was no. just like. No, no. <laughs> no, 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 Millicent. From this point forward. <laughs> You don't need to explain the thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> you make me laugh. Okay. All right. <laughs> Please share another piece now that we talk about it. Okay. <laughs> you get caught up in the rapture. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, see, now I got to produce here. Okay. <clears throat> okay, I'll clear, I'll clear the palette. <laughs> um, this one's called To Miss the Shadow. To miss the shadow. It was a dare and a spit and a hope that we were moving towards a place, like catching a storm or running through a batch of luck. 
no breathing out in the alley like the tall grass that used to cut back in the olden days when neighbors talked over the fence at each other. And it was okay with God to like family because we were when and where and we were how to in the outdoors where we ran free. The future was all of a piece to keep, a place to save us from. We were fearful then of real things that meant something to us. And it was in our power just to keep silent in a grand fog of yelling voices, trying to hold it all together, even when it was not so, so all not right. And the doors were slamming. Back in the day, we were all so self-important and wondering dreamy about ourselves, and we were sore and solemn clueless like like yeah it was impossible do you remember that time when we held everything in our arms tightly as if we knew what we were talking about you know and you share you share with such conviction and power what is the relationship between your speaking voice and your written voice mm. i just feel like i want to get it right i want to do justice to the words Mm-hmm. And so I feel like I have to pay attention, and I I I think in, I'm 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 more sloppy in normal mm-hmm. speech, and so when I look at my poems, I want to get them right. So I want to make sure you know you color in all the dots or whatever. I want to make mm-hmm. sure that I at least try to do the best job as I can to give to give each poem its own shot. You know. How much power do you have on a poem, or do you feel that a poem tells you what it wants to be? Hmm, that's kind of tricky. That's why they pay me the big bucks. I think they're really – go ahead. <laughs> I said, that's why they pay me the big bucks to ask you questions. <laughs> 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 they can't always be softball questions, Millicent. <laughs> I'm just joking. I think I the really, the really good poems, they take over. And the ones I struggle with, they're more me trying to make a, a square peg fit in a round hole. Right. So the really good ones kind of write themselves, almost like, ooh, this is too easy. The really good ones, like some of them come in like just one fell swoop. But I learn things from the ones that don't come easily. So if that makes sense. It does. It does. You know, poetry has a reputation of being less accessible than prose. Do you agree with that? And how do you potentially combat this perception? Accessibility is the key. Yeah, you know, people say that all the time, don't they? They yes, say, they oh, poetry is so, you know, it's so dense and impossible. I think giving the poem voice changes things. Mm-hmm. I think if you read something on a page, maybe if you're not familiar with poetry, it seems like it's dense. But then when you hear it read aloud, that adds another element to it, and I think they're easily more easily accessible when they're read aloud and read on the page. Um, yeah. I think, you know, I've, I've done some work a little bit in uh, middle schools with kids, mm-hmm. and for them, they like poetry more than fiction. It, it's accessible mm-hmm. to them. They can write it, and they read it, and they share it, and then sometime between then and, you know, end of high school or college, they, they get, they change, and they think, ooh, poetry, it's so erudite and and it's not mm-hmm. for me but it's mm-hmm. really it's not true you know I can remember I can remember another thing will make me look bad I think I can remember <laughs> being in school and my mom saying oh you're going to study Chaucer because I was an English major 
right. and eons, eons ago, right? And she's like, you're going to study Shakespeare and Chaucer. Oh, my goodness. And I start taking the classes, and I, I was like, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm like, Chaucer, you know, it's a little bit about farting and stealing and prostitution. <laughs> and, you know, it's not, all, it's not all up and up like that. And same thing mm-hmm. with Shakespeare. It's truly body if you get into it. So I think that's way about a lot of a lot of fine arts, you know, opera too. You know, the people have this high high vision of how things are, but it's right. not really true. Well, here are a couple of questions about voice. You know, people talk about assisting the voiceless, finding your voice. What makes your poetic voice different? Well, it's it's mine, and only I can have my voice. Okay. So as long as you are being true to you and writing um, what you know and mm-hmm. matching who you are with the page, then um, I think that's key. When you're writing, trying to find your voice, it's really looking for your voice. It's always there. It's not something you have to create. You just have right. to pay more attention. You know? All right. So if you had to give someone who was searching to find his or her voice or their voice, what would you say? I think I'd go for the jugular vein and say write about what matters to you. So mm-hmm. and and take away some of the constriction. So a long time when, when I teach workshops, I would do free writes and you set the timer and you use paper and pen. And you set the timer and you say, just write for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Don't take the pen off the page and just write whatever comes. And without editing, it's that editing voice that gets in the way of the voice. So you want to try to shut up the editing voice and get to the voice behind that, not the one that's telling you you can't, not the one that's saying that, that Shakespeare and Chaucer are almighty. Um, right. But you have to cut through that. And getting to self is writing about what matters to you, write mm-hmm. about what what is bothering you in the world, what you care about, what you love, write about what's important to you. And so the closer you can get to that, things you care about, things, ask someone what bugs them, what's really bugging them. When they can talk for two hours about it, that's a good topic to write about. You know, here's a question that I asked several weeks ago of someone, and it kind of relates to what you just shared. Do you think poets must write about issues that directly affect them, or can they just write about rocks and be okay with that? They can just write about what? Rocks. Rocks. R-O-C-K-S. Oh, I was like, works? Rocks. Okay. Rocks. I I think that no matter what you do, you seeps into whatever it is. Okay. So if someone told me to write about rocks, <laughs> the me that was thinking about a problem would seep into that writing about that rock. Wow. And there's nothing I can do to stop it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think it's impossible. And even if you're writing up, you're like, well, I just made this up. It's totally fantasy. You can make up a story, but there's always something about you in that story. And you bring a part of you to that. Nothing's truly made up. It's always belonged. If you're writing about it and you're talking about it, there's a part of you bring you bring yourself to everything. <clears throat> wow, very nice. You know, now we've reached a part of the program that I really love. 
I call it a mini, M-I-N-I, poetry concert. This is where you share, let's say, four poems, maybe five if you like. There's no interruption from me, no questions, just poems back to back. All right? Okay. The stage is yours. Okay. Side by side in Fragile. Locate a crudeness, a thought about a fortress where help is a sign of rumored comfort and abandonment means insanity, a lost hope of what things used to be before the malice set in and took over like a new pleasure that used to be painful. How can we do this over and over without learning from the missteps we make? It's a sign in the back of our heads, a cold-seeking war machine that looks out for where we are most damaged and seeks the parts where we are most awake and inside the most insincere and all melt weak about as we are hopeful. The machine, it takes that away by dodging reality and expecting every day to be an occasion, like Holy Ghost Face does in June. Home, the place where we are drawn out and vulnerable because of our dreams and the bounds of excess joy we exude. The machine seeks out where it knows we are in pain and can be cut off into that deep hurt contentment that no one ever could fear or listen to or read towards, yes, far away from here, all the way back to the back of the back time when everyone on your block was still close at hand. That is where the machine sends us. The undoing. There's an impersonalness to our touch working backwards from intimacy into being misassociated strangers. What activities not to do anymore? Touching cold feet in bed or putting a washcloth to my face? Are these acceptable gestures now that we are rewinding into the opposite of lovers? We have tried to face the wall inside the tunnel that is where we used to travel through on our way to being together, and we have pressed in a non-onward direction, like switching from left to right forced to hold the wrong hand, to relearn how not to be, how not to throw and catch awkwardly, how to face with the other shoulder, how to bend the wrong way into a triangle, into a new limiting direction that keeps you trapped and strangled and lost. Everything from scratch, transforming into a scar. The places when you used to know things by heart. Time is putting on your right shoe and steadying yourself on the left, jumping around to keep a sort of balance in an irregular circular way, as if you are fooling yourself safe back on the ground and can protect the country from failing, becoming a universal key positioned into the lock of how new life has become unremarkable, disappeared, and a lot more ugly. End poem. This is from a line by Pablo Neruda. Green was the silence. It changes meaning like water, as a living being, like unfettered civility. A sunny, breezeful summer ahead, the start of June. It is altogether stifling, and as if things would never be straight again, we feel as if we had promised to be dark and mortal. Soon, like strangers from the past, we promise to be each other's solid memory. We have shortness of breath and a pounding inside the lungs. We cannot remember a time when we were able to sleep, before when we were former and usual, vivid beings who existed in the city of Los Angeles, drifting through rivers of errands and emeralds as if nothing had happened. We are lost now, as if we had been careless 
dropped out, like music not written down, but whistled and hummed and played under strange circumstances, like a stranger with a guitar at a party. It is near June, near the longest day of the year, as Jordan comments in The Great Gatsby, a seasonal marker, complete with a sign that says, we're done now, and we are together and alone, and about to get reckless and cruel, but yet this time it will be different. This year, belonging to the entangled world that has been ripped apart, we are limited by so many things since the quarantine. Absolute touch and hunger, and it all goes to show us that nothing is visible or at hand anymore. We are a perfect example of ration and virtue, essentially savage, and yet in a new sense, we are blindly controllable. We feel alternately safe and in danger. Every moment altered with no telling which statement above is truer. We are reckless absolute and sexual reasonable, full at home, shocked, martyrdom, and wary of being present for what is about to come. We pretend to be on holiday and take out the board games, self-full of pride and fear, notching achievements with false pride, your charm, my conflict, our 24-hour conversations lack a richness of reality, embodied with a generous sadness. End poem. And the last one I'll read is also from a line by Pablo Neruda. <clears throat> Wet was the light. I'll repeat it. Wet was the light. What was the light as we saw it through a threadbare lens of what we call time or that period of waiting between what will happen next and what we regret having happened? The hard, bad opposite of a world hunch or an omen. The silent, low sense of doom to come. A spirit arising in the country we'll call home. The desire for isolation, desperately to be different. The unexplored nonsense of late. This is the air in the pastel room when we are enclosed and locked up by an intense wondering and fear of comfort, fear of letting our guard down and forgetting to protect ourselves from nearly everything we can imagine, even the scrape of skin upon our hands, the whispered hello of a neighbor or a child playing in the creek below the yard where there are dirt banks instead of lawn. We are who we choose to become, are becoming, or perhaps we mean we are who we are sentenced to be. A corona crown of if in the if and now and meant for always. That time is a path to follow as we near the day of the year when June rises. Her longest gaze of a day and tells us it is all right to enter. Hmm. End poem. Wow. Do you think you were meant to be a poet? I think you take what you have been given and you work with what you have. Okay. Um, I think that if you're if you're given something and then you ride that something into the uh, horizon, that's what you have. Um, right. And so it's like I I mean if I could have picked like ooh will I write bestsellers I might have chosen to do that, <laughs> but I, I take what I'm given and 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 that's what that is you know. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess in a, in a sense I'm I'm really glad I, I wasn't I wasn't meant to be something that I wouldn't want to be but oh, wow. as it luck luck would have it um, mm -hmm. this is a path and it was really the only thing that made sense for me and worked for me. So I was really lucky, and, and I'm grateful for that. What surprises you most about being a poet? 
Oh, you never realize. I feel like I'm talking about college and stuff, but you never realize when you're like you're planning out, you're studying, and you're in school, and you're filling out all the forms. Like so, you're applying to grad school, and you're trying to get a grant, and it was always taking out loans, and you're filling all these forms, and you think, oh, that's what I'll do. I'll make a living writing, right? And you think, Mm -hmm. but you know. After I graduate and stuff, all that shit's gone, okay? I just, I'll just be a writer. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, you know, 10, 20, 30 years later, you are still writing out forms to beg people <laughs> for money and stipends. And I'm sitting there, and so much of my time is spent writing letters on the phone, just sitting around begging for this. I call it my begging things. And mm-hmm. writing, writing another letter of reference for someone else or for my, and getting let someone to write one for me, getting blurbs mm-hmm. for books, uh, mm-hmm. applying for funding for, for events that are important that I think would matter in the world, um, trying to get travel money, trying to apply for a workshop thing, and everything has so many hoops. And you think, mm-hmm. you think when you're 20, 25, you think, okay, I don't ever have to ask teachers for letters anymore, and I'm done. But being a writer is so so much, so much asking and begging and just the daily, um, the daily work of trying to get the word out and sell books and, and, and get reviews and give reviews and do interviews and all that. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, it's just a lot, a lot of work that you think you, you, you're like, oh, now I'm, I'm on the throne and I'm a poet. Or, and right, it's not, right. it's not that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. You know, like well, they say the president, they say the president, oh, you're the, the king of all kings, right? But he's actually a servant, or she, or he, right? Yes. Actually a servant. They are the lowly, they are begging for everything, to get something to, through Congress and the House to get it signed. And, and mm-hmm. it's a life, if you want to make a difference in the world, your life is a life of begging for favors and asking people to join you in an effort to make a difference. All right. <laughs> wow. I, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> it's like snowflakes in the sun. You know what I'm saying? No, you didn't say that. <laughs> you know, we've reached the end of our poetic journey. Wow. <laughs> but would you... Would you favor us with one more before you go, please? I'm begging. Oh, another poem? Okay. Yes. Sure. Okay. This one is not in the book, but it's All in right. a, a piece. It's in a, a series of pieces I'm working on that are loosely based on the Psalms. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. The countenance is upon us. That's the title. I'm going to say it again. The countenance is upon us, he would say, as he trailed the shiny black abdomen of God, flying in circles around the backyard, traversing through the set-up clothesline, strung between a pole and the white fence next door around the redwood playhouse, shaped like a birthday present. There may be, there are maybe many who say, what is the good in this, the traveling upon air currents from flower to flower, a bee who lifts the authority of blessed flight, rare in his discrepancy of being sovereign above the light of day, the bee's chase of his passage in flight, of time covering our bellies in the sun, matching the speed at which he tours, two girls, we are immobile on the 70s chaise lounges, burning under coconut oil, 
The sound alone was rough and loud to fear, the swarm of inside the world view of teenagers, of being greater than ourselves, the bee. We are paralyzed for years, it seems, stymied in place, in a shock that feeds off the electricity of hoping the bee does not hover over the honeyed lemonade on the table, with its slice of crisp rind attached to the rim of the glass, located next to our brown hands, whisking over a towel dense in oil and sweat, we were July and extravagant, scared of what was to come. The dark outline of a fettered stinger displayed to us brazenly as the shadow of the bee flies over our bodies, tense and waiting. The insect powerful and dense, streaming in flight, inches from the bent down grass below us. We dream of nectar and pollen. Watching the large carpenter bee land on the sunflowers, the bachelor buttons, the black-eyed Susans, and the metal swing set. We imagine the dark tunnel body disappearing from sight like remnants of a night dream flushed in the light of morning. Vanished, we wished we are giants or lords wanting to trample and dance to the humming music that takes over our territory. We cover the sunglasses and dare not to move our legs. We feel the salt water of sweat trickle down our backs as we hold our breath. Venom loading inside the jelly bean body insect, errant and commanding us to nest, to stop, to tread lightly with our thoughts of back to school days or leaves falling, gray hair, canes. We hear the droning blind sound as it starts again, the bee. Even the monarchs are nervous as the commanding shadow continues its stalking of the moment from blossom to midlife like a test alighting and crawling in the dye of yellow pollen. Like the middle of a fable, we are at a crossroads. Wannabe traders unwilling to toe the line. Colony queen, somewhere between half an inch to an inch with an oval-shaped body markings. There was once a story about locusts eating a wooden fence, taking the clothes off the back of a farmer. Killer, roller derby queen, bee. Are we in our youth parasites, the keepers of truth? Throated in our own style of deep-roaring fear, we watch as the bee crawls into the white trumpet flower on the other side of the lee, solitary in its unknown confinement, busy, post-larval, nesting inside the laddered pistol as my dad clasps the rim of the flower, the trumpet flower, while inside is the bee, crawling in stripes, unknowing the trap of the lure. Wow. End poem. Epic. Melissa, where can listeners find your work? Where are your books available? I have, I have um, Quarantine Highway, which was mm-hmm. Flower Song Press, and they're in Texas. They have the that book for sale at their um, their publisher's website, Flower Song Press. And um, previous book is Through a Grainy Landscape, and it's with New Meridian. And they are located in New York. Both books, Quarantine Highway and Through a Grainy Landscape, are also on Amazon. And I can be found on uh, Twitter and Instagram, um, Topanga Hippie. (laughs) And um, I also have um, Only More So, an earlier book, and Injuring Eternity. Both are available on Amazon and from the publishers. And I have a website which is my name, and um, I'm on Facebook and Twitter. I do a lot of Twitter. Hopefully mm-hmm. it will be around and not die out. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you never know. <laughs> I'm sure Elon has a plan. Uh, <laughs> what's next for you, Melissa? 
Millicent, where do you go from here? Um, well, I'm working on this, the Psalms and putting together that manuscript. And I'm just, I'm focusing on the quarantine highway came out in October. So mm -hmm. I'm focusing on doing readings and um, getting reviews for the book, hopefully, and um, some book sales, getting it into libraries. And I have um, been writing some lesson plans for poems in the book so teachers can access a poem and use it in their classroom. Um, and mostly focusing on the, the, the two newest books that I have out and trying to pitch those and um, get those out into the world. I want to thank you for joining me tonight. I've had such an incredible time. You are thank you. an outstanding poet. And I'm not surprised that you've been so successful with all the awards and the fellowships. I'm just not surprised because you've got talent. Oh, thank you. That's really nice. I'm I'm really honored that you had me on the show, and I really appreciate this chance to read my work. Right, right. Uh, I just think you are absolutely incredible, outstanding, amazing. I don't know what other words or adjectives that I can use, but I just wish nothing but continued success. Thank you so much. All right, then. Well, that's it, everybody. <laughs> Millicent Borges-Aclata <laughs> is a name that you will hear again and again and again. I know it. I don't doubt it. I believe it 100%. I want to thank you out there in listener land for joining us. And as I share with you every time we're together, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night, Millicent. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. <laughs> right. Bye. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.